thankful for those things. Let's take our Bibles and look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, we're going to begin tonight in verse 9. And I think that we will read um, verses 9 through 17 to start. And then we'll open in prayer. So 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you're thereunto called and that you should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that speak no, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and be always ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of hope, of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak of evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. We're going to look at just those verses tonight. Uh, let's open in prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our time together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this good night. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to be together and uh, to open the word and to study. Uh, Lord, I pray tonight that you would provide for us through your blessed Holy Spirit, Lord, the illumination that we need uh, to apply these truths to our life. Father, I pray that you would guide us into truth and understanding. Lord, I pray tonight that as we seek to grow in the grace and uh, grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you would profit us in that. Lord, we're thankful for your blessings and for your mercy. Thankful, God, for the opportunity to come together and to share. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased with all that you hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue tonight. We're still having this, this conversation about relationships. Uh, as we uh, moved uh, several weeks ago into chapter 2, verses 19 and moving forward, we started looking at this idea of the connections or the relationships of the born again. And we've looked at uh, relationships that we have with the world that we're in. You remember we spoke about being pilgrims and sojourners. We looked at our relationship with the powers that be, that of uh, government, institutions, and, and how we interact with them. We looked at uh, our working relationships, whether we be uh, the boss or, or the, the worker, how we are to relate with one another. We looked at relationships between spouses, uh, those of the husband and the wife. And then last week, 
we, we spent most of all of our night in just the one verse, verse eight there, considering relationships within the body of Christ, that between believers, how we ought to treat one another. In fact, uh, for context, if we would read in context, verse eight would actually fall in line with what we read tonight. Uh, indeed, if you would think about the way we began, if we would have said, finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil. You see the context and the contextual flow there. Last week, we looked at this idea, uh, that verse 8 of being just in the body of Christ. As we shift into verse 9, uh, we're still looking within the body of Christ, that interaction between the born again, but we're also seeing uh, the, the interaction between those outside of the body of Christ as well. Because truthfully, beginning in verse 9, all the way through, all the way through verse 6 of chapter 4, the relationship that we're seeing is one of suffering. It is the relationship between the, the person who suffers and the person who persecutes. Isn't that interesting that, that the Apostle Peter would see the need to instruct us as to how we are to relate from a Christian perspective with those who are persecuting us. And that is truly what we see. And so this can be in the body or without the body. So we ideally, we would not consider that there would be persecution one to another within the body. But practically speaking, if we think about things that occur within the body, uh, disagreements between individuals, uh, a type personality that that has a disagreement with someone of a, a lesser demeanor, how that could feel persecuting to that lesser individual, uh, how sometimes within the body there is a, a fracture or I'm not crazy about the word schism, but that idea of a break and, and there is a, a lifelong damage between that and, and for the life of those individuals involved, they hold harbor ill feelings towards the other side or the other part of the argument. When we, when we think about that, some of the things that we see tonight apply to the body. Generally speaking, we're looking at those relationships with the persecutors or persecution that comes from without. If we uh, look at, as I said, verse 9 all the way through verse 22, even though we just read to 17, and then verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, we would see all of that under the umbrella of as it concerns suffering, uh, our relationship with the persecutor. But for, for clarity's sake, those 20 verses would actually be consistent in subject, but they would divide into three sections. And thus we look at the first section tonight. As we look through there, we're going to see uh, this first section that I want to deal with tonight speaks directly to the character or the characterization of our suffering, how it might look, what type of form it may take. And then 
uh, we'll look at next week, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, uh, the, the, that passage speaks to the champion of our suffering. It actually holds up the Lord Jesus Christ as a type and example. And so that we can see that even when we do everything right, there may yet be persecution. Okay? And we need to comprehend that. And then that third section is going to deal with us speaking to the certainty of our suffering. And so uh, let me just say this, uh, not to be a spoiler, uh, but you'll see the truth when we look at that verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. But if you're born again and you're walking in the Spirit and you are following Christ, there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some persecution. Now, that doesn't mean that we walk around sappy saints crying about everything, right? Indeed, uh, we ought not do that. But we do, from a reality perspective, understand there's going to be some difficulties because we're in the world and not of the world. So looking at uh, these first few verses, verses 9 through 17, uh, I want you to notice uh, to begin with, uh, these are dealing with uh, the character of our suffering or an expression of whose we are, an expression of who we belong to. And uh, we might even say, who do we embody? So when, when pressure comes, that inner character that is revealed from that pressure is that exemplary of Christ or, or is it not? And then therein lies the work. So notice first our response in suffering. He says in verse 9 uh, that when, when difficulty comes, the difficulty may be uh, someone is speaking evil of you or someone is railing on you. That is a, a verbal assault, a verbal attack of a, of a malicious nature or uh, someone is uh, uh, speaking harshly to you. That's the context, our response in suffering. How do we respond? Well, Peter says, first off, in that situation, we do not render evil for evil. So we, we don't uh, render evil for evil. We don't rail if we're being railing, railed upon. Uh, but to the contrary, we bless. So as a believer, uh, our response to suffering the question I would have to ask myself, if someone uh, personally attacks me, and look, based upon your own spiritual maturity, those attacks could be, could be, uh, they could be pretty childish, and you feel attacked. Or you might have uh, the spiritual skin of the Apostle Paul. I doubt it, but uh, you might have, and... So your, your endurance of those, that railing or that spiritual attack or that evil speaking may be, may be just off the charts compared to everybody else. But the question is, what is my response in that suffering? If I'm evil spoken to, do I return evil? I'm not asking you, should I? I'm asking you, do you? Right? This is a, it's a personal challenge to each of us. Do if if uh, if if someone 
uh, speaks evil to me, do I return evil? If someone rails at me, do, is, is it my response to begin railing back at them? Because this is the truth. That's the natural response. In fact, it's the most common response. But in the life of the born again, every time it's going to be a regretful response. It's going to be something that leaving the, the, the altercation, we're going to walk away feeling like, okay, I didn't handle that very well. You know, I failed myself. I failed the Lord. Uh, I let down the body. And so uh, he's, he's asking that question. And, and Peter says here that the, the response ought to be to the contrary. So if we're cursed, we should bless. If, if we are attacked, uh, we should encourage. If we are railed upon, we should seek to return edification. And uh, look, this is, the, this is the difficulty of that. Uh, you have to do that in a sincerity of heart. Right? And so what we understand is that there is some preparation. <laughs> it's not just going to come natural. Uh, you can't just walk through life expecting everything to be rosy because what's going to happen is when the attack occurs, the natural is going to respond. And what we want to do is develop the spiritual. So uh, he, he goes on to say there, by the way, in verse 9, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So uh, your calling as a believer, your calling as a Christian makes it your responsibility but it is not natural. And so if we do not strive to respond correctly, we're going to respond incorrectly. And look, that's going to happen. It's going to happen in the church. This is the difficulty of it. Not recognizing the, the needfulness of being spiritually prepared to rightfully respond. And uh, you remember uh, your mom Maybe your mom taught you this. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Uh, just, just from experience, uh, and, and look, we don't, we don't have troubles in the church, praise the Lord. In this church, we don't have troubles. But if, if something occurs, can I, I just want to make an experiential recommendation to you. Just don't say anything to start with. Just don't. Because whatever comes out of your mouth immediately is going to be a natural response. It's probably going to be wrong. Where if you let it breathe, <laughs> uh, I'm just telling you, uh, you know, uh, I've got experience with this. Just let that thing breathe for a day or two. Give it some clarity. Give it some perspective. Give it some prayer. And then walk or work towards a right response. Because as I said, it's not natural. We have to strive to respond correctly. And again, there is a, a blessing associated with the right response. So we see our response to suffering is that if, if, we're, if we're attacked, we are to edify. If we're cursed, we're to bless. That's the right response. Look at our restraint in suffering. Verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. 
Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. So uh, what Peter's doing here in, in verses 10 through 12, he's actually quoting Psalm 34. He's quoting around verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 34. That's the Psalm of David. Uh, do you remember the story of David uh, when he was fleeing and uh, he, he had a Goliath sword that he had taken from the temple? Uh, the priest had given it to him and he was on the run, so to speak. And he came uh, to uh, reveal himself to Abimelech, the king. And he feigned as if he was mad. You remember that? Started he spitting all over himself and, and, and had spittle in his beard and foaming at the mouth. And he was speaking out of his head because he wanted them to think he was crazy. Because people are scared of crazy folks, right? That's basically what David was doing. This psalm... Psalm 34 is written during that portion of David's life when he felt like he was constantly under attack. He had sure and certain persecution coming from Saul, the king of Israel. Saul wanted him dead. Uh, he had enemies all around Israel because he had been a captain and a champion for Israel and he'd killed all these people. He felt like the whole world was closing in on him. He knew that God had anointed him king. He knew that his time was coming. He was having to make all of these decisions on the run. And Psalm 34 is a result of that part of his life. And in that Psalm, uh, David says, uh, look, that guy that's going to love life and see good days, that, that guy that's going to wring out life and get all the good that there is and, and see uh, good times, uh, that guy is going to have to refrain his tongue from evil and his lips are going to have to not speak any guile. Guile is deceit. Guile is a lie. Guile is presenting yourself as something that you're not. And David says in that psalm, listen, if, if you want to live a good life and see good days, you're going to have to practice restraint. I'm telling you that uh, many born-again believers today don't understand what restraint is. Somebody say amen. Because they don't, and, and we don't. Evil speaking and deceitful words. That, that is not speaking hurtful words against one another. That's what that is. Or against those who are persecuting us, for that matter. That's the... The, the, the uh, intent of the passage, but when we're using deceit or trickery to our benefit, we're not practicing restraint. And you say, well, wait a minute, it sounds like you're accusing me of lying or this, that, or the other. But uh, look, this is the, the fact of the passage is that if you're going to love life and see good things, you're going to have to refrain. And then in verse 10, it's not just refrain, not just hating bad, but doing good and pursuing peace. See, there's a positive action involved there that, that we would uh, avoid evil, intentionally avoid evil, uh, habitually shun behaviors and actions that would impugn either our Savior or our salvation or the church that we claim to be a part of. Not only do we avoid wrong, we intentionally do good or intentionally do right. That we, That is, we are consistently seeking to do well 
or to work righteousness. There's, there's, a, there's a world of difference between doing wrong, not doing wrong, and doing right. See, there's, I mean, there's, if there's 180 degrees between doing wrong and doing right, there's 90 degrees between not doing wrong and doing right. You see what I'm saying? You've not accomplished it just because you say, well, I'm not going to do that that I would like to do. I'm not going to burn them down verbally. Well, that's half of what you're supposed to do. The other half is you're supposed to build them up. That's the, the picture is that we're practicing restraint and in practicing restraint, we're intentionally doing that which is right. We're intentionally not doing wrong and intentionally doing right. We are, uh, we are seeking peace. That means we're looking for a peaceful resolution. We desire to see things come to peaceful, amicable conclusions. We not only seek it, but we pursue it. That is our goal. It's our desire. It's our aim. That's what we're working toward. So that means that we are not contentious. Uh, contentious is a Christian's middle name. <laughs> and and uh, we, Christian, as a born again believer, we should not be contentious. And uh, it's rampant. Uh, but listen, this is the trick. We're not to be compromised either. See, if, if, we, if we just default to a natural response, one of those two things is going to happen. If we just default to a natural response, we're either going to be hard to get along with, contentious, or we're going to be compromised in our beliefs and our practices. It's the idea is that we, that we're not either of those things that, that we're doing right while seeking peace. So that means if doing right results in a less than peaceful situation, which is a very real possibility, then that means that we'll seek to navigate that situation without deceit, without deception in a spirit of love and righteousness while honoring the Savior who we love, all the while understanding a reality of suffering. And can, am, I, am, I, am I talking to the back wall or do you guys get what I'm saying? Do you experience this? Right? It's not... It's, it's next level. It's almost like graduate work. Because uh, when, we, when we get saved and uh, we get baptized and we get membershiped up with the church and we join in and when we're in the church, everything's good, right? We're here on Sundays. We're worshiping. We're singing. Uh, we're, we're, we're learning some things. And, and, and then it's not the Sunday that's the problem. It's the rest of the week where we're practicing not being contentious and not being compromised and, and not railing against somebody and not responding from a natural state, but trying to have a spiritual response and understanding what edifying and building up somebody looks like. 
And that's what Peter is writing to. In verses uh, 12 and through 14, uh, and again, we're still looking at some of that psalm, uh, there, there's a reality uh, we, there is, we have a reality in suffering that what I'm saying is we have to accept that reality. Uh, in fact, he's going to say, we're going to close this passage with saying that there's rest in suffering if we're suffering for doing well, because that means we're in the will of God. And so, uh, there's this picture uh, where he says the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open under their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So the reality is that we may not find peace here. We, you and I probably... I would say this much. I, let's keep it personal. I have a very difficult time not believing or believing that I won't find peace here because I've lived basically a peaceful life, right? Uh, but you think about these Christians that he was writing to, these first century Christians that were the diaspora of Jerusalem. They were born again Jews. They were hated by the Jewish people. They were hated by the Romans. They were hated by the anti-Christians. They may not have ever enjoyed any veritable peace other than what peace they had in their heart between them and God. That's who he's writing to. And, and we just talked on Sunday about being prepared for whatever upheaval might come our way. So we, we need to accept the reality that there may come a time where we can't find peace here. That peace is not in this place, but the Lord, whose we are, the Lord, who we belong to, is watching over us. Do you see that? He's watching over us and his ears are open to us, ready to respond when needed. And, and not only that, it's not just that he is for us, uh, he is against them that do evil. So our perspective then has to shift from a temporal perspective to an eternal perspective, understanding that whatever is going on right now is temporary, but eternity is what waits. And for those who are evil against us, it's not our place. It's our place to bless them and to respond to them in the right way. Why is that? Well, you might win them with your testimony. It's the Lord's place. He's the one that's against them. There's a, there's a necessary sidebar right here. I, I don't know if anybody picked it up or not, but he says there that, that the, over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So the sidebar is, is these couple of questions. Who is the Lord watching over? What does it say right there? The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. So who's the Lord watching over? He's watching over the righteous. He's watching over his. The born again child of God. And not only that, I ask this question, who is he listening for? That's what it says, right? 
His ears and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So uh, this is, and, and look, this is not all, I, I don't sit around thinking these things up on my own, okay? I'm in good company here. Uh, but there's a, there's a sidebar here of the idea that God is concerned about the righteous, that that is the one who is right with the Lord. That is uh, the one who's born again. So that tells us this. The only prayer that the Lord will hear from a lost person is a repentant sinner's prayer. So uh, this Hollywood movie, uh, romantic novel uh, line of thinking that uh, this, this deadbeat alcoholic dad who's out carousing and doing all of these things that he's not supposed to do and and his, his little baby girl gets sick and he, he comes home and, and in a moment of, of self-introspection, he, he reconnects with the, the greater authority that he's never known. And he, and he prays and begs that his daughter would be healed and God heals her. That's, that is erroneous. It's damaging. It is, it, it's just completely a fabrication of emotion and sensation. The, the prayer that God hears is either the, the repentant sinner's prayer or the prayers of the righteous. Look, there's a part two to the sidebar. If, if God only hears the prayers of the righteous... Where does, where does that put us uh, when we are carnal Christians living in broken fellowship with the Lord? That's a dangerous place to be. There's a reality in that. Uh, that's, uh, so, so the benefit of salvation is that we are now right with God and His ears are tuned to us. The benefit of an open fellowship with the Lord is that in our righteousness, uh, we are in a fellowship with God and He is looking to uh, cover us and protect us and provide for us. And if we are in a, in a state of carnality, we have broken fellowship with God, we have unrepentant sins in our Christian life. There's a dangerous place right there. And uh, so that is why it's important that we utilize, if you will, for lack of a better word, 1 John 1, 9, that we, uh, as Doc always says, keep a short list that, that we are prayed up and we are walking right with the Lord so that, so that he hears when we pray. Verses 13 and 14 there, uh, he goes on to say that, uh, who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? And, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And, and don't be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. And, and it's, uh, he's reminding us that when, the, when we suffer for righteousness sake, we're going to be blessed. That that's part of God's work in our life. Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. So is there a benefit to being in a right, open, clean fellowship with God? Absolutely. 
Are, are the only benefits of being born again those of an eternal nature? Well, no. That's the whole picture of, of walking in Canaan victorious, that we can enjoy uh, those things here and now, knowing that we're going to inherit eternity. So uh, we see our responses. We see our restraint. We see uh, our reality in suffering. Look at verse 15 and let's think about this idea for a moment. The, our readiness. Our readiness in suffering. Look at what the, the verse says. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. I, I want to... Uh, Handle these first. They're not in my notes. I just want to take care of them real quick. Meekness and fear. Uh, that, that is not weakness and trembling. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we are ready to answer somebody in meekness and fear, meekness is power under control. We have uh, the dynamis power, the dynamite, 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 Power, the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, because we're born again. We are expressing power under control. Fear is reverence of God. So with meekness and fear, that is uh, power under control and reverently uh, towards the Lord. Uh, here, Peter is talking about this idea of being ready to testify or uh, to give a testimony or uh, to give an answer of our hope. And the first thing he says is, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Uh, we just talked about this on Sunday night a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what is sanctification? What does it mean to sanctify something? Because uh, bec we, we have taken that term and, and kind of uh, uh, mutilated it in the, in the Christian Walk because we think of sanctification, uh, and when we do, uh, if we're good uh, Bereans, good Baptists, we think of progressive sanctification that occurs in the life of the believer, uh, that as we mature, grow in grace and knowledge, we become more and more sanctified. Uh, we are being conformed to the image of Christ, and as we stand before Him at the Bema seat, or, or if the, when the rapture occurs, uh, as we stand before Him, we will be like him, be totally conformed to his image, glorified at that time. So we think of this progressive sanctification, and if we're not careful, we think of this cleansing process. Uh, we think of a, a, an, an issue wherein we're cleansing something, wherein we're uh, improving something, wherein we're reforming something. And then we come across a verse that says, sanctify the Lord. And see, now we have a, we have an impasse <laughs> because we're not going to cleanse the Lord. We're not going to improve the Lord. We're not going to uh, any of the purify the Lord. So what does sanctify mean or sanctification? And, and this is, this is what it means. I know that you all know this. You guys are way ahead of me. It means to set apart or to make holy. So when we think about this idea of sanctify the Lord God in our heart, the idea there is to reverence the Lord in your heart. You, you identify him in your heart 
as the most holy, most reverent, sovereign God of your life. That is literally making him the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, of your life. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. So, so you are lifting him up in your heart. You're giving him a place of preeminence in your heart. And uh, this is the problem. You can't do it. You can't make him the capital L-O-R-D unless you capital K-N-O-W him. <laughs> right? I mean, you can, you can be saved without capital N-O-W. You can, you can be saved without really knowing the Lord. You can be saved because you heard the gospel and, and there's power in the gospel. There's life in the gospel. The Holy Spirit convicted you and wooed you and you, you were obedient to that and you repented of unbelief and you believe the gospel. Boom, you're born again. But you still don't know God the way you ought to know him. This is the problem, and give me a number, Brother Scott, 80% of the church? This is the problem. They, they know the Lord well enough to be born again, but they don't know Him well enough to sanctify Him in their heart. And so when persecution comes, He's not in a preeminent spot in their heart, and they can't defend themselves. It's... The idea that when we're not talking about salvation, but we're talking about not only salvation, but illumination, confirmation, revelation. It is the idea that we grasp who he is. If you will have an answer, if you'll be ready to answer, it'll be because you know enough to respond. Uh, J. Vernon McGee makes this comment, the tragedy of the hour. And he said this in the 70s. <laughs> it's worse now, uh, if you didn't know. Uh, the tragedy of the hour is that there are so many folks who say they're Christians, but the skeptic is able to tie them up in 14 different knots like a little kitty caught up in a ball of yarn, and they cannot extricate themselves. Because they don't know the Lord. They don't know Him. Well, the question then, how do we know him? Well, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Uh, in times past, God spake through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his son, Hebrews. It's, it's knowing the scriptures, reading the word of God, studying the word of God so that you can know the word and be ready when suffering comes calling. Not be a casualty. Lastly, that's not completely last, our reputation in suffering. Look what he says there uh, in, in the latter portion of that. Having a good conscience, verse 16. <clears throat> that whereas they may speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely ac accuse your good conversation in Christ. I want you to think about your reputation and suffering for a moment. So another very important facet in the Christian wall. It is our reputation. Specifically uh, during difficulties or tribulation or persecution. Uh, I've been raised my entire life. My dad uh, 
My mom and dad raised me in church, praise the Lord. Uh, but my dad raised me to be a businessman. As early as I can remember, I mean, it's just, that's how it was. He was teaching me business principles and how to think like a business person. And he just taught me that all my life. And he's told me all my life, uh, uh, I was raised to understand and value my reputation. Not only mine, but his and mom's. And, and I know several of you probably have that too. And, and reputation is one of those things that I believe has fallen prey to uh, the exaggerated idea of personal liberties. Because this is what people say. Well, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, I do. Uh, I care what people think about me. I don't, I'm not living for them, right? But I want them to think I'm, a, I'm an honest guy. I'm an upstanding guy. So I was raised to protect my reputation. And, and Dad used to say to me, uh, uh, I've, I've fancied the language up a little bit, but he said something very similar to, conduct yourself in such a way that if they talk bad about you, they'll have to lie to do it. I've heard that all my life. Uh, be, be who you're supposed to be. And if they're talking bad about you, they're lying. That's basically what Peter's saying here. You live your life for, for Christ and do so in a fashion that if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they have to do so by false accusation. They have to lie in order to say something bad about you. And then when they do that, the shame is on them. But I'm afraid many times that the Christian does damage to ourselves in that arena. Often the accusations are true. They're just a factual representation of the behavior. We, we, we respond in anger sometimes. We respond in malice sometimes with false accusations in our own group. Gossip or we're guilty of backbiting or murmuring and complaining. Those things are uh, prominent in the church body. Uh, they're all damaging to reputation. And each one of those things requires repentance in order to repair reputation. And listen, this is the most uncomfortable part of it. If it's something that was done publicly, guess how it's got to be repented of? Publicly. When's the last time you've seen a public repentance in church? Doesn't happen very often, does it? When's the last time you heard somebody do something public they need to repent of? Don't raise your hand. Why is the church anemic? Why is the body of Christ anemic? Why are we not able to accomplish those things that God puts in front of us? Because we are not truly repenting of uh, these things that we're guilty of. And I mean, we're all guilty of them. And so I know that in my own walk, these things have occurred and, and there's a penalty. There's always a penalty, and sometimes with some people, the penalty lasts forever. I mean, you can respond to some people incorrectly, and you can just forget it. You've lost that person forever. That's, that's indicative of, of their character, but it's still indicative of your behavior, right? And so uh, we have to practice that being cautious and, and being conscientious and being considerate. Also as believers. We have to practice forgiving. So that when somebody does that against us. We can forgive them. So that we're not the one holding that against them. Forever letting them live rent free in our minds. And, 
and damaging the forgiveness that's come to us. We forgive the way we've been forgiven. We show grace the way we've been shown grace. We show mercy the way we've been or the way we've received mercy. And then finally, uh, our, our repose or our rest in suffering. He said, for it's better, verse 17, if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So it's a very common statement right there. Uh, look, it's better. It's better if, you, if you're going to suffer, it's better that you suffer wrongly accused than rightly accused. That's a very simple, logical statement. But there's also rest or reassurance in that statement and in that suffering because when we suffer for righteousness sake, when we suffer for well-doing, we can then accept that as the will of God. This is God's will. This is something God's doing in my life. God has a plan and a purpose in it. And he's working. Listen to what Paul says, and we're closing in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. I'm going to share these few words with you, and then we'll close. I just heard this a couple of weeks ago. Conversion is going to bring conflict. But the good news is, is that conflict produces constancy. And constancy builds character. And character produces confidence. When we suffer for well-doing, we're suffering in God's will. God's doing a work. And that's building character in our lives. And it's something that we can rest in. I want you to meditate on these thoughts this week. How would you rate your response, your restraint, and reality and suffering? How would you uh, classify your readiness and reputation in suffering? Are you comfortable with these things? We would say there's rest in suffering when we are in the will of God. Are you comfortable in these things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good night. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Lord, I pray that they'd not just be words, but Lord, that they'd be actions in our life. That we would walk accordingly. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.